Good morning. Just before we start, thanks to all those who have offered to help with coffees and welcome team. You'll be getting an email soon and I'll be doing the new rotor from May to August. If there's anybody else out there who wants to join, come and see me at the end as well. Right, we're going to read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for, her, for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him, before he was conceived. That is probably the most well-known passage from the Bible, isn't it, for non-Christians as well, if you think of all the parents who go to nativities and so on, uh, or go to Christmas service maybe, once a year. So it's a very, very well-known passage. And I'm, call, I'm going to call my talk A Tale of Two Kings. Today is the 3rd of March, isn't it? 2019 A.D. What does A.D. stand for? Anno Domini. It's Latin for the year of our Lord. So the calendar, the calendar we use, counts the years from an estimate of the year of Jesus' birth. It's probably actually a few years out, but things could have been very different. We could be counting the years from the birth of Caesar Augustus if the Roman Empire had continued and... Uh, to expand the way it was under his rule. So he's mentioned in the first verse, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about him and then we'll compare him with Jesus. So who was he? Well, he was actually born, Gaius, he's a nice, he's quite good looking chap. 
He was born Gaius Octavius in 63 BC in Rome. He wasn't anybody particularly special, but in 43 BC, his uncle, Julius Caesar, which I'm sure you've heard of, was assassinated. And when they read his will, they found out that Octavius had been named as his heir. So he was kind of catapulted from obscurity to huge wealth and power, and he decided to grab that power with both hands. So he fought some battles to avenge Caesar, so he defeated Antony and Cleopatra in 31 BC, and he became the undisputed ruler of Rome. And in 27 BC, he became emperor. Uh, Rome had been um, a republic, but he, when he took power, it became, he was the first emperor and uh, he took the name, he changed his name from Octavius to Augustus, meaning lofty or serene. And he kind of oversaw this transition from a republic to an empire. His power was absolute. And uh, that sort of concentration of power was abused very uh, severely as the years went by. Now, if you're of a certain age, and I worked out, you probably have to be about... 55 or older, you may remember I. Claudius. Who remembers watching I. Claudius in 1976? <laughs> so it's based on a book by Robert Graves, and it tells... It's an amazing book, actually. I've read the book, and it was an amazing series on TV. I think you can still see it. But it tells the story from Augustus to Tiberius, and then Caligula, you've probably heard of him, Claudius, and then Nero. And, uh, you know, just those names that sort of conjure up might send a shiver down your spine, the sorts of things they got up to. Um, brilliant book if you want to read it. Now, Augustus, Augustus wanted to convince the world that his rise to power was good news. And um, lots of very impressive propaganda was spread around the empire. So there are lots of very nice statues of Augustus all around the empire and coins bearing his likeness um, were circulated, marking his reign. And it kind of signaling really that it was Caesar who guaranteed the trade that was making people rich and comfortable within the empire. Some of the coins, not this one, but some of them actually said Caesar, son of a god on the coin. Um, now, an example of this sort of propaganda that went around um, was... Uh, an inscription that was um, found in the city of Priene in Asia Minor. So I think that's in present-day Turkey. And in 9 BC, they wrote this. So it's, uh, you, uh, it, it's, um, they found these writings uh, still. And this is what they wrote about Augustus. Providence, which orders all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set things in perfect order by giving us Augustus and by sending him as a saviour. And that, the Greek for that is soter. For us and for our descendants, that he might end war and make all things beautiful. Since by his appearing, Caesar has exceeded the hopes of all who awaited this good news. Euangelion. The birthday of the god Augustus marks the start of the good news about him for the world. So it's quite interesting. Remember those two words, saviour and good news, that were spoken of about Augustus. Um, 
And some people wanted actually to start the new calendar from the birth of Augustus, or his birthday, I think. Uh, so at home, he embarked um, on a large program of reconstruction and social reform. Rome was transformed, lots of impressive new buildings. Um, I think the Colosseum was built after him, but lots of very famous buildings um, were instigated by him. And he was also the head of the Roman state religion. So he was called Pontifex Maximus, the high priest. And, um, of course, he had a month named after him, which is August, is it not? So there is some things left of him. August was named after the Roman emperor. So abroad, he created a standing army for the first time. And if we look at the map, you can see most of the then-known world was under Roman rule, even into England, up to, up to Hadrian's Wall. And he expanded the, the empire, and it was designed to make Rome safe from the barbarians beyond the frontiers and uh, to uh, secure what was called Pax Romana, Roman peace. But... So there, was, there were good things about Rome and the empire, but there were lots of very unpleasant things. Rome was an intolerant, brutal military regime that used its propaganda skills to humiliate and destroy those who would not conform. So I, uh, uh, here's another film. How, how many of you have seen Spartacus, the film Spartacus? I am Spartacus. Do you remember that one? So that was based on a true story of the slaves' revolt in, in the 70s B.C., and they were crushed in the end, and 6,000 slaves were crucified along the Appian Way, a famous road in Rome, just to show we're in charge, the Romans are in charge. Okay, so that's a little background about him. Now, in our passage, um, Luke doesn't only give us his name as a kind of timeline so that Theophilus knows you know, when about this all happened, but it also would kind of conjure up all the ruthless power and might of Rome. And it was by the order of Augustus that the census was carried out, probably for tax purposes. They wanted to know how many people the empire uh, had and how much taxes they could get in. So Joseph hears of Caesar's decree. He has to travel to Bethlehem to register. Mary's quite a few months pregnant. Apparently doesn't want to you know, stay in Nazareth uh, while Joseph's away and goes with him, not knowing how long he's, he's going to be away. She accompanies him to Bethlehem. It was probably about, it's about 100 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. So Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem only because of the command of Caesar Augustus. Or is that the real reason? Because of Augustus? Well, I don't believe so. Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem because God had said through his prophet Micah that the Messiah would be born there. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. So that was written by the prophet Micah about 600 years 
before the birth of Jesus. So that's like somebody in uh, maybe Henry VIII's time, a bit earlier, prophesying about something that happens today. 600 years. Okay. Luke is showing how God has controlled the nature and the circumstances of Jesus' birth. God is sovereign, even over mighty Caesar. Caesar thought he was so powerful, but actually, God was the one who was in control. It's just amazing. Had the emperor not issued his decree, Jesus would have been born in Nazareth. But God had his plan. So God is in control. He's in control of Caesar. He's in control of us as well. He's, he's in control. We'll come back to that in a minute. So while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So unlike in most popular accounts, Luke does not say that Mary gave birth the night she and Joseph arrived. May have done, but we don't know. It doesn't mention a stable or cave. We don't know. But sometime after they arrived, she gave birth. And there's another prophecy, this time from Isaiah. Also about 600 years ago, before birth of Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now the child is here, the long-awaited Messiah. But, well, this magnificent birth takes place in a far from magnificent place. Okay, the setting. Jesus is born within the prophesied city, but not in a palace, not even in a house. Animals may have been present, we don't know. All we know is what Luke tells us here. There was no room for them in the normal place travellers would stay. So the couple stayed elsewhere. Either there was an animal's feeding trough, a manger there, or they needed a resting place for the child, and Joseph found one. So a young girl, a virgin, gives birth to a tiny, crying baby and puts him in a feeding trough. Wow. (laughs) It is, you think about it, amazing. I've just been reading um, the Narnia books, you know, the C.S. Lewis, seven of them. I read them as a child from when I was about six, and uh, absolutely wonderful, because they kind of, tell about Jesus in a slightly different way. And uh, I've just finished all seven of them, and they're just as good as they ever were. And in the final one, the last battle, Lucy says this. Yes, said Queen Lucy, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. God has planned this event since before the beginning of time. Such a humble setting, isn't it, for the birth of God's son. But God can't keep quiet about it, so now he's going to proclaim it. And uh, he's going to tell the significance of what's happened. So he sends a large number of angelic uh, messengers to announce the birth of the long-awaited Messiah. Well, he could have gone to Caesar Augustus. He could have gone to King Herod. He could have gone to the high priests or the chief priests but he ignored them. Instead, God chooses to send his messengers to a group of poor shepherds herding their flocks in the middle of the night. Poor, humble, despised shepherds. And a judge like Theophilus, to whom Luke wrote, knew that their testimony was 
regard as, as unreliable in a court of law. So Luke wouldn't have made it up. How does the prophecy from Isaiah 9 begin? It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Well, yes, spiritually, yes, with the coming of Jesus. But also, this happens physically, doesn't it? Because those shepherds are in, on the hills in darkness. Maybe they had a little fire, but it's dark all around. I remember when I was in um, oh, 19, 1985, I went to Tanzania and Kenya before I went to Bible college. And I went on a church um, weekend away in the middle of nowhere in, in Kenya. And we, it was over a couple of nights. And we stayed in uh, this little village. It was so, so dark. I didn't have a torch with me. It was very, very difficult trying to find the way to the, to the toilet. <laughs> yeah, it was so dark. It was so dark. Um, We've got so used to the electricity and the electric lights and so on. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. There's a big flash, a bright light. The glory of God shines on them. It must have been amazing. An angel of blazing, blazing brightness, mighty in strength, overwhelming in power, appears before them. Their reaction? Fear. Every time angels appear, fear. But the angel said to them, Do, that's also the, what always happens, don't be afraid, for I bring you good news. That's that same word that was used in the inscription. That will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour, same word, has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So Augustus Caesar, well, maybe good news. Maybe a saviour, but this is the real deal. This is the real deal. And he's also called uh, Messiah and Lord. So Lord was, actually was one of Caesar's titles because they did think that he was a god. Luke's words would have been very radical to Roman ears, but also the Lord is a name for God the Father in the Old Testament. Messiah is, is um, the Equivalent in Greek uh, is Christ, Messiah, or the anointed one. So Jews were expecting the Messiah. They weren't necessarily thinking that he was going to be divine, a God, to be God. He, had, he was going to be a descendant of David. They knew that. He would be great and mighty, restoring the kingdom to Israel. He indeed was to be a saviour. But they mostly thought a kind of political saviour, Get rid of the Romans. And even uh, Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 verse 71 says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So there was this kind of thinking that the Messiah was going to be a kind of military person. Uh, it's interesting. Luke doesn't sort of elaborate more on these words, Messiah, Lord. Um, but as you read through the gospel, slowly, Jesus is slowly revealed what it means the Messiah really means. The shepherds were overwhelmed with fear and surprise at the angel's appearance. They're astounded and a bit confused by the angel's words. Then the angel says something even more preposterous, really. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So this might have been actually the biggest surprise of the night, that these angels would appear to poor shepherds to announce the Messiah's birth is quite surprising. 
But the long-awaited Messiah, wrapped up like a common poor infant, placed in a feeding trough, doesn't quite compute, does it? Mary had said of God in Luke 1:52 that he lifted up the humble, and he surely does that by choosing a humble place for Jesus' birth and by speaking to those shepherds. But as if to underline that this is the greatest news the world has ever heard, to ensure the shepherds understand that the baby's location does not diminish his glory, numerous angels now suddenly appear, praising God. Glory to God in the highest heaven on earth, peace to those on whom his favour rests. God is bringing the highest glory, the deepest praise to himself through the humble birth of his son. And he promises peace among those with whom he is well pleased. This is not kind of general command of goodwill toward men, but it's God's peace, peace with God, because we have a problem, because we're separated from God by our sin. But for those who are his people, for those who are his treasured possession, for those who are the true, true Israel, he's bringing peace. And Micah had said as much in his prophecy we read earlier, the Messiah shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and he shall be their peace. So he comes to bring peace to us. As we read on, there are kind of three responses to this good news that the angels bring. So the first one is the, angel, the, the shepherds. Okay, so they've seen this amazing sight. They've heard the words. They have no proof that it's true. But the angels tell them they will only know for certain after they have proved their faith with their feet. So they had to go to Bethlehem. We only get absolute proof that the gospel is true when we start putting it into practice, actually. Okay? Do you, if you remember the story of Moses uh, when he speaks, God speaks to him in the burning bush. As an example, and God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So Moses has to get up and go and do as God, you know, God's word. And then he sees the truth of it behind it. Okay? You have to put our faith into practice. Another example, this is Jesus saying, anyone who chooses to do the will of God, so we have to do the will of God, we'll find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So, so often we have to take that step, so taking a step of faith, isn't it? Step out of the boat. And then we find that actually God's word is absolutely true. So the shepherds say, we've got to get to Bethlehem now. We've got to go and see so off they go as fast as they can. It must have taken them a while. I don't know how they went about it. Did they go, well, they've got to go and find a feeding trough, really. So I don't suppose Bethlehem was that big, but eventually they find uh, Mary and Joseph and the infant Messiah. And they excitedly tell Mary and Joseph all that happened, all the angels said. And then... The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So how did the shepherds respond? With joy, with faith, and they give glory to God. They spread the news to others. They can't help telling other people about it. It's the perfect response that we should make as Christians. 
God's word, faith, which leads to testimony. Are we ready to do the same? To share the good news? Okay, that's the shepherds. What about Mary? If you look at verse 21, like all Jewish babies, Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day. And as with Zechariah and Elizabeth, the angel gave the baby a name before he was born. Will Mary and Joseph give that name to him? Will they name him Joseph, as they should have, would have done? The name that would have been expected, they name him Jesus. So they believe the angel's words. Mary responds to all these events with quiet faith and obedience. The third group of people, verses 18 and 19, tell us about another category of people. They hear the shepherd's story, so I guess people in Bethlehem hear the shepherd's story, but Luke kind of contrasts their reaction with Mary's. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Luke is kind of saying that the report was circulated, it caused a stir, but he doesn't say that people responded concretely to the birth. I read, somebody said, the report tickles the crowd's ears, but it may have missed their hearts. We don't know. But Mary took everything to heart. And I love this, I love this sentence. She treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She didn't lose them. She turned them over in her mind. And as, you know, Jesus grew and then went off with his disciples, his under, her understanding of what Jesus, Messiah, what it meant, would grow and grow. And little by little, her understanding deepens. It's a bit like, you know, when I, I became a Christian like 40 years ago, and I, after a few years, I thought I knew it all. But by golly, you don't know it all. As you ca carry on with your walk, you learn more and more. And stuff you thought you knew, ooh, you go deeper with him. There's no end to what you, we can know about Jesus until we meet face to face, maybe. Amazing. So... Just to round off, the, uh, the, we started by comparing two kings, the Emperor Augustus and King Jesus. Now, there's something written, uh, it's called, well, I don't know how to pronounce it because I never did Latin, but it's Res Gestae Divi Augustae, the deeds of the divine Augustus. So he wrote this before he died, and then it was uh, the kind of first-person record of his life and accomplishments and this is a copy of it in Rome somewhere, but there are bits and pieces of this inscription all around uh, Turkey and so on. And um, so he wrote about all his, the deeds that he'd done. And uh, I had to look at it, not, obviously not in Latin, but in the English translation, and it tells about you know, how many countries he conquered, how many public games he paid for, how many buildings were put up but, you know, on his order and so on. It goes on and on pages, actually, of stuff he did while he was emperor. Nothing much remains today except our month of August. What might Jesus res gestae, and somebody who knows Latin can tell me how to pronounce that, maybe this, the deeds of Jesus, the things done. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. 
Well, I know which one I'd choose. Now, towards the end of um, Jesus' life, we read about the events of the crucifixion, don't we? And uh, I just put up a couple of verses from Gospel of John this time. And here's the two kings being compared. So Jesus is before Pilate. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So Jesus died the same death as Spartacus, crucifixion. It was an awful way to die. And it was for claiming the same titles that Caesar claimed for himself. And it was meant to be the humiliation of Jesus on the cross, the emptying of his claims at the hand of Caesar, but it's just turned over on its head, isn't it? The cross was meant to be Rome's symbol of power over its enemies, and nothing could be further from the truth. How amazing is that? I want to show, it's just two minutes, it's from a poem called One Solitary Life. I hope you can hear the words, all right? But even if you can't hear the words, you'll see what's going on. One Solitary Life. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village. He worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30, and then for three years, he was an itinerant teacher. He never wrote a book, he never held an office, he never owned a home, he never had a family, he never went to college. He never traveled, except in his infancy, more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompanies greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While he was still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemy. He went through a mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled with the only piece of property he had on earth, his seamless robe. When he was dead, he was taken down from the cross and laid in a borrowed grave through the courtesy of a friend. Twenty wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race. All the navies that ever were built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned, put together, 
have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has this one solitary life. So it's that powerful, I think, very powerful uh, video says at the end, all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as powerfully as this one solitary life. So what will be our response? Will it be like the shepherds? God's word leading to faith, which leads to testimony. Will it be like Mary, treasuring them up in her heart? Will it be like the crowd who kind of it, hmm, it's quite interesting, but they never take that step. So if that's you, somebody who's never taken that step, and you've heard all about Jesus, yeah, maybe one day. Don't wait, don't wait. Time is now to accept Jesus. And as you take that step, honestly, it all kind of falls into place. It all falls into place. I just want to finish by um, talking about testimony. Um, I shared this with the young people a couple of weeks ago. Um, just to show that our testimony, or what we, what we say and uh, as we share the good news with people, what effect it can have. So I was a missionary in Tanzania, and I came back 25 years ago. And then just out of the blue... About a month ago, I had an email from a girl, a Tanzanian girl who now lives in America. And uh, she used to go to the little primary school that we, Helen, my colleague and I, we used to go around to different um, schools to, to teach RE, primary schools and secondary schools. Most were in Swahili, but there was one English primary school which we went to called Olympio. So we went there, we do RE lessons, more like Sunday school. And we did... Um, a holiday cat, you know, week holiday as well there. Anyway, so I suddenly get this email after 25 years because she had found somebody who knew me and got my email. She says, I'm so excited to get your email address and your phone number. I have so much to tell you. One thing I know is that God answers even the tiny whispers in our hearts. The timing of how the story of your name popping up in our conversations was so miraculous. Uh, no, that's God, isn't it? And his timing. And I was so happy, just so happy and overwhelmed to get connected with you. I learned all the Bible stories at the religion period at Olympio and how, oh, how I loved the songs you taught us with your guitar and uh, words stuck up on the wall. We didn't have computers and things like that. It was my favorite class at Olympio. It always gave me peace of mind and joy knowing that there was a God who loved us. I sing all the songs that we learned from your class to my son. Our Lord God, he's a bit old now. In the name of Jesus, our God is so big. Through our God we shall do valiantly. Glory, glory in the highest, and there is a redeemer. My son's favorite is there is a redeemer. You have been so instrumental in introducing Jesus to me and my family. God, may God bless you for all the work you did. Well, I was totally overwhelmed to get this. Because I, you know, I was a missionary, but I never, I don't think I ever really led somebody to the Lord myself. But one did one stuff. So that was amazing. I wrote back. And then she wrote back another a few days later. I gave my life to Jesus, 
Jesus at Olympio. Do you remember the workbooks you used to give us to take home and read and answer questions at the end? One was called The Christian Life. It's the only copy I brought with me from Tanzania. I still have it. When I was reading one of the workbooks on a weekend and a chapter talked about the second coming of Jesus, I remember reading it and recognizing that I was not ready for Jesus' coming. I remember telling my mum and crying that Jesus is coming again and we needed to be ready. I recited that prayer and I know Jesus never left me ever since. I remember that you paid for the booklets for me and I thank you. Uh, for sowing a seed in my life. So, if you don't know Jesus, don't go out of that door without finding out about him, because he is the real deal. Amen.